guys. So uh, we are going to be in Luke chapter 9 this morning. Luke chapter 9, I'll invite you to find your way there. And, and while you're finding your way there, we are uh, just a, a footnote for you guys. We are looking at, I guess I can say this about any of them. They're all good. But this is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. This is such a, a good place because Jesus just... It all kind of comes to a head. So uh, what we're going to be looking at, this, this great question that Luke has been asking and, and highlighting through the different stories that we've looked at so far in Luke, he's put it before his readers time and time and time again. We've seen it. People asking the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? We've, we've seen this several times already. In, in Luke chapter 5, we saw the scribes and the Pharisees ask the question, who is Jesus? In Luke chapter 7, we saw John the Baptist ask the question, who is Jesus? We saw in Luke chapter 8, the disciples, after Jesus calmed the storm, they're looking at each other going, who is this man? Who is Jesus? The beginning of Luke chapter 9, a few weeks ago, as we started this kind of chunk of our story, uh, we had Herod, the Tetrarch, ask the question, who is Jesus? And now Jesus actually asking the question of his disciples in our passage today, who is Jesus? So Herod kind of opened up this line of questioning a couple of weeks ago, but Luke told a story last week. You guys remember Pastor Dave sharing. Luke kind of stuck that little story in about how Jesus fed the 5,000, maybe 10,000, maybe 15,000. All those people, Jesus performed this miracle and, and fed them and, and used that story as a a little bit of an answer to our question, but this week we just get it spelled out super clear for us. Maybe you're uh, thick-headed like I am sometimes, and, and you didn't notice that Jesus was who he said he was in the story last week when he performed that miracle. So Peter's just going to spell it out for us this week. So uh, we're going to see this direct question from Jesus and Peter's very clear response. So let's read our passage. I'd invite you guys to follow along. We're going to start in verse 18 and go all the way down through 27. It says in verse 18, it happened that while he was praying alone, Jesus, uh, the disciples were with him and he questioned them saying, who do the people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And as he was saying, and he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that we can come and gather together and be a people that are set aside for your work in our lives. God, we as the church are, God, we are your people. And so as we come together, as we gather, as we study together this morning, God, we pray that you would, in your perfect power, God, that you would speak to us. God, that you would allow us to have ears to hear as Jesus has talked about in other places in Luke. And God, that you would give us 
not just brains that understand, but God, that you would give us hearts that, that grasp this truth that you are going to share with us this morning. God, help us to be people who will choose to, to walk the difficult road that you have called us to. So God, we give this time to you, and we pray that you would use it and that you would speak to us. It's in your precious, beautiful, uh, holy name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Well, we've got two questions that, that kind of come up naturally from our passage that we're going to look at. So the, the first question is, who is he, Jesus? And the second question is, who are we that we need to answer? So let's look first at, at who is he. <clears throat> if we look at verses 18 through 22, we see a little bit of an answer there. But, but before we jump too far into that idea, I want to point something out for you guys that, that jumped out at me as we were reading this. So in verse 18, we, we see Jesus doing something that we've seen several other times in Luke before key events, before things that, that are really important that come up. Did you guys notice it? It said in that verse that, that before this all happened, before this line of questioning happened, it says, while he was praying, then Jesus went and asked the question. You guys may have noticed at key moments in Jesus' ministry, they, they always seem to be preceded by prayer. Prayer is an incredibly important thing for Jesus, and if it's important for Jesus, it probably should be important for us too, right? We see these, these key moments in Jesus' ministry. Before his ministry even started, he went out into the wilderness and spent 40 days praying and in fellowship with the Father before he was tempted and before his ministry began. Before his baptism, Jesus was spending time in prayer. Before choosing the 12 disciples that were going to follow him and, and take the the message of the gospel to the world after he was gone. He spent time praying. Before his transfiguration, we're going to see next week, he spent time praying. Before he went to the cross, he spent time praying. Prayer was something that was critical to Jesus because as our model, as the perfect man, he was fully God, but he was also fully man, and that meant that he was dependent on the Father for everything that he did. For all the ministry that he did, he was dependent on on God the Father in all of it. And so that really essential element that he could not overlook was, was that he had to be in connection with God in order to be on the same page and, and accomplish what God had given him to accomplish. So we reach this critical moment in the disciples' journey. We come to this point in our passage where we're looking at Jesus finishes praying and, and turns and asks the disciples this question, who do people say that I am? And and as Jesus asks them that question, it, it kind of marks a, a line in the sand that Jesus has drawn with his people. See, you remember a couple of weeks ago, Herod was talking about this same question and, and, and presented some ideas, some options of who Jesus might be. Well, some say John the Baptist, but some say one of the other prophets. Some say he's just a good teacher or a, this or that. Or The disciples here present some of the same options. They say, well, some say John the Baptist. Some say one of the prophets of old. The question that people were wrestling with, that Herod was wrestling with, that, that the scribes and the Pharisees were wrestling with, is who is Jesus? And, and they presented some options, right? They said, well, some say maybe he's just a good teacher. Some say he's a prophet, and the possibility is out there as well that maybe he's something more. Kind of seem like the same uh, options that people consider or face today, right? Some people will say that Jesus was just a good moral teacher. Perhaps the most prevalent view that people uh, present today, if you were to just walk up to people on the street and say, who's Jesus? Tell me about Jesus. 
A lot of people would say that he was a good teacher, that he had a lot of good things to say, and, and millions hold this view, despite the fact that C.S. Lewis, we, we've talked about it a couple of months ago, said, well, if you, can, you can call Jesus lots of things, but you can't call him just a good teacher. Because as Jesus walked around and, and ministered, and, and we have this historical picture of who Jesus was, he made it very clear, he said, I am God. He said it several times. He said, I am the Son of God. I am God. I am equal with the Father. And so if Jesus is walking around saying, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God, well, you know what? He can't just be a good teacher because either he knew that he wasn't God and he was lying about it. Well, that doesn't make him a good teacher. Maybe he was a crazy person. He thought he was God, but, well, that's kind of a problem too. We don't want to follow a crazy person. Or he really was who he said he was. Whichever one of those things we choose, we, we can't just call him a good teacher. So if he was not God, he was a liar, he was a crazy person, but either one of those options isn't really someone that we should call a good teacher and follow. The, another option that they presented was that he was maybe a prophet. The average Hebrew on the street, if you had gone up to people in that day, uh, Jesus had a fairly high reputation. His approval rating was high at this point. He had been going around in Galilee for about a year and a half and had been performing miracles and healing people and, and doing incredible things. So people had a pretty good opinion of him at this point. But their best guess was that he was a prophet, that he was one of those guys kind of in the, the line of Isaiah or uh, Elijah or Ezekiel or one of the, yeah, we've, we've heard those stories of those guys that, that spoke on God's behalf and, and did some really awesome things. Maybe he's just like one of them. This is the same view that millions of Muslims around the world hold today, that Jesus was maybe a good man, he was a prophet, he spoke for God, but he wasn't God. Jehovah's Witnesses believe the same thing. He, he, he was a good guy, he was a good teacher, but, but he wasn't God. Jesus, hearing all of these options, now turns to the disciples, and, and they presented what other people have to say about who Jesus is, but now he looks at them and says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And predictably, I, I, I could only assume that there was maybe a little bit of a pause when someone uh, looks at a crowd of people. If I were to ask you guys, who do, who do you say that he is? We're going to just predictably have a an awkward pause in silence, right? Nobody wants to be the first one to raise their hand and, and answer the question. So I, I imagine there was probably this quiet pause and predictably, right, we know who's the one out of the 12 disciples that's going to speak up. He was the same one that spoke up all the time. Peter's the one that, good, bad, or ugly, is the one that speaks up and raises his hand. I know! You are the Christ. That word Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah, meaning anointed one, meaning promised one, meaning the one that, that the, the Jewish people had been looking forward to for hundreds and hundreds of years, that God had promised would come, would, would set them free from the captivity that they were trapped in. Even though they, they may have misunderstood a little bit what that captivity was talking about, they thought he was going to set them free from Rome, not from sin. But, but they pointed to this, and, and Peter says, you're the, you're the one. You are the one that we've been waiting for. But Jesus' question to the disciples is, is an important one because it, it brought them from looking from the outside in, saying, well, other people say this. And it forced them to answer the question for themselves. Who do I believe that he is? 
Peter had to answer for himself, who do I believe that this man is that's standing here asking me this question? And I think that begs the question of us today because it's important for us to do the same thing. Who do, who do we say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? Is Jesus a good teacher that we can uh, take and, and, and pick out the little pieces of what he had to say that, that sound good to us? Was he just a good teacher? Was he, was he perhaps something more? We cannot stop by, by simply offering what other people have, say, have to say about Jesus. We have to decide for ourselves. So we see that first question that we all have to wrestle with. Who is he? But now Jesus turns the tables. As, as Peter has responded and, and said who he believes Jesus to be, now the question turns in the next few verses, and, and Jesus looks at him and kind of asks the question, Who are you? Who are you? What, what role do you have in this whole thing? See, Peter's confession saying, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, you're the one that we've been waiting for, it, it easily could have led to some misunderstanding, right? What they understood the Messiah to be was the one that was going to set them free from captivity. So it could have easily led these disciples to a confusing spot. So Jesus, in hearing that, says, yes, that's true. Also, let's, let's address some stuff, right? So Jesus immediately moves to correct the possibility of the misunderstanding that, that these disciples may have had. See, the disciples anticipated probably that, that there was a direct route to glory that being one of the guys from the inner circle of the Messiah probably held. They thought maybe there's power or, or privilege or opportunities that come along with being at Jesus' side that, that are going to be beneficial to us. But see, they had a lot to learn because the road that the Messiah was going to walk, that we know that Jesus didn't come to, to conquer Rome. He came to conquer sin. And, and that looked drastically different than we anticipated, perhaps, if we were sitting at this table as this was happening. Verses 23 through 27. Let's read those again and, and remember what Jesus is saying now that, that he's been declared as the Christ, as the Messiah. It says, as he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will find it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So after Jesus predicted that his life was going to end in suffering and rejection, that he was going to be killed and then that he was going to be resurrected, he, he, he mentioned all that in verse 22 in our last verse. Now he turns to the fate of his followers. There's three conditions that Jesus lays out here in, in verse 23 that are in, just incredibly important for us to consider as we talk about what it looks like to follow Jesus today. He lays them out. He says that, that if you're going to follow me, you must deny yourself, you must take up your cross daily, and you must follow me. First one, he says, deny yourself. That's much more radical than just denying a few certain things, right? He's not saying, just, just give up this one little thing. No, when, when Jesus called the disciples, these men, to come and to follow him, it, it meant there was a constant denying of, of what used to be important to them. 
These guys didn't go back and, and be fishermen during the work week and then they followed Jesus on the weekend. No, following Jesus was a full-time thing for them. And it meant denying themselves. It meant a, a rejection of the life that was based on self-interest, on, on pleasing themselves. And it meant focusing fully on what Jesus had for them. A disciple is to be one who, who willfully sets out to do the plan that God has for us, to follow the teachings that God has set out for us. Perfect example of this, uh, you guys may or may not be familiar with this man. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor who lived at the beginning of the 1900s. In 1945, as a 39-year-old man, he was hanged by Nazi Germany for standing up for the truth, for standing up against the evils of Nazi Germany, and, and, and they finally decided to exterminate him. And, and he wrote a book. He wrote several books, but, but one of them that is probably the most well-known is the book, The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book, chapter 4, it talks about this idea, this passage of Scripture. It talks about it at length. And so there's a couple of quotes that I want to share with you guys from uh, that book as we go through this passage. But if you're bored and sitting around, I cannot highly recommend that book enough. It's a great book. But let me read for you guys uh, one of the statements that Dietrich Bonhoeffer made about the cost of discipleship, about denying ourselves. He said, To deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self, to see only him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. Once more, all that self-denial can say is, He leads the way, keep close to him. What he's saying is when, when we set aside our wants, our needs, life may be difficult, but the point of denying ourselves is not even looking around at how difficult our life is and going, man, you know, I, look at all this stuff I'm doing for you, God. Look how, li- how difficult my life is, God. Now, what he's saying here is, We don't even focus on how difficult the road is because our eyes are fixed so firmly on Jesus, on, on, on he leads the way, I follow him. Everything else pales in comparison. Jesus is calling to us saying, it's not about you. The path of following is, is not, about, it's not about you. It's about, it's about following him. The old selfish me is dead and is gone, and as I deny myself, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, reminds us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away, and a new man stands in his place. The things that used to be important to us, we lay those aside, and we take up our cross daily. It's the next thing Jesus calls his disciples to. He says that, that when we confess Christ, that we embrace dying to ourself that we embrace his dying on the cross that jesus went to the cross for us so if jesus went to the cross for us we also have to accept the reality of a cross for ourselves he died for us to set us free from sin but we also died to ourselves so that we can live the life that he calls us to that he wants for us another bonhoeffer quote for you guys here he said in that same chapter the psalmist was lamenting that he was despised and rejected of men, but that is an essential quality of the suffering of the cross. This notion has ceased to be intelligible to a Christianity which can no longer see the difference between an ordinary human life 
and a life committed to Christ. The cross means sharing the suffering of Christ to the last and to the fullest. Only a man thus totally committed in discipleship can experience the meaning of the cross. The cross is right there, right from the beginning. He's only got to pick it up. Remember that the lens through which that was being said, because as Bonhoeffer was writing those words, he was walking a difficult road. He ultimately walked that road all the way to a, a martyr's death because he was standing up for the truth instead of agreeing with what the evil regime may have been saying. Luke added to this, uh, other gospel writers noted this, take up your cross and follow me, but, but Luke added to it the need to do this daily. I thought that was interesting. Every morning we wake up, every moment, every day, every opportunity we have, daily we pick up our cross and we follow him. We wake up, we roll over, and we say, good morning, cross. Don't say that to your spouse that may be laying next to you. That seems like a bad idea. But, but we wake up every day and we say, all right, no vacation days. No days off. No days where I just am going to go do what I want to do and, and not care about what Jesus has called me to. Every single day, every opportunity that we have, we make the decision. Today it's for Jesus. This moment it's for Jesus. So what are our crosses? I think we may get confused about that sometimes. So our cross is not just something that's difficult in life. There are a lot of things that are difficult in life. You may have a, a, a challenging coworker that you work with. You may have a, a, a strained relationship with a family member. Young uh, students, you may have a teacher that you just believe is out to get you, right? Anybody have those? I had one of those, and I was homeschooled, so whatever. It's not just simply a hardship. What a cross is, is being someone who specifically walks so closely in Christ's steps. In the path that Jesus walked, that, that we walk so closely in step with that. That it means that people look at us and they, they don't like us because of Jesus. John chapter 15, Jesus was talking with these same disciples, telling them that, that life was going to be difficult for them. He said in verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hates you, hated you. What Jesus is saying in, in that chunk of scripture is, guys, the world didn't like me, and if you're going to be like me, and if you're going to look like me, and you're going to act like me, and you're going to hold the values that I hold, you know what's going to happen? They're not going to like you either. Jesus says, deny yourself. He says, take up your cross, and he says, follow me final condition mentioned is the need to follow jesus so in contrast to the other two if you if you want to be a language nerd with me for just a minute this verb follow is in the present imperative indicates that that this isn't something that happened once it isn't something that just is an occasional thing it means following jesus must be continual it's a continuous action that happens constantly hey continue following me follow me regularly it's the difference between follow me every moment of every day and, hey, you remember that one time you followed me? That was cool. Who remembers the, the game when you were little, follow the leader? Anybody remember that game? Yeah? Right? There was the, the, the one child at the front of the line, the super empowered six-year-old that said, everybody in line has to do what I say. 
And so they would march around and probably most of the time try to make themselves look as silly as possible, right? They're marching with their knees up in the air and flapping their wings and, and doing all kinds of crazy stuff because everybody had to follow what the leader said. This past week, we got an opportunity. My family, we, we took just one night, we went overnight up to Running Springs and, and rented a cabin up there because we wanted to take the kids up to see the snow. While we were up there, the night that we were up there, about 18 inches of snow fell. And so we woke up the next morning. There was already some snow on the ground, and so there was a couple of feet of snow on the ground. And so we were out sledding and playing in the snow and all kinds of stuff. And, and as I'm taking the kids down the hill and they're trying to walk back up the hill, like, that's a lot of snow to try to hike through. And if you guys uh, don't know, I've got a, a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old, and they, they did okay. And I've got a four-year-old. And the four-year-old was really struggling uh, walking back up the hill. And so one of the times we sledded down, and he's walking back up behind me, and he's been fighting with this hill at this point for a while. And he figured it out. You know what he did? He figured it out because he's walking behind me, and he goes, you know, Dad's footprints are already kind of smushed down a little bit. And I hear behind me over my shoulder, he says, hey, guys. And he's talking to his older brother and sister. Step in Dad's footprints. It's easier. You don't, you don't fall down into the snow. Follow dad's footprints. Follow the leader, and, and the path gets a little bit easier. You know what Jesus is saying here in this passage? I think he's saying the same thing. He's saying, guys, follow me because my path is worth it. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6 kind of says this exact same thing. It says, the one who says that he abides in Jesus ought himself to walk in the same manner as which he walked. If we're going to say that we belong to Jesus, if we're going to identify ourselves as a Christian, that word that means little Christ, you know what? That means that we should walk in the same way that he walked. Next, we've got uh, some practical illustrations of this call that, that Jesus lays out for us in verses 24, 25, and 26. He makes it super practical for us. Verse 24, he says, Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Whoever loses his life, to lose one's life doesn't necessarily have to be associated with martyrdom. We don't have to walk the same path that Dietrich Bonhoeffer walked in giving our lives, but, but even though we may not be called to become a martyr, to give our life physically for the sake of Jesus we are practically every single day called to, to give up our life. Those three conditions, the, the fulfillment of those three things that we just talked about, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him, they lead us back to what we were just talking about a few moments ago. You remember when you were six, right? Maybe you guys had better friends than I did, but if I misplaced something when I was a kid, you know what happened? Just about every time, I would misplace something, and I was never the one to find it, right? My friends would find it, and you know what I heard after they found it? Finders keepers, losers weepers. <laughs> I found it, it's mine now, you don't get it, sorry, too bad. You know what Jesus is saying here? I think he's flipping that little statement on its head. Because what he said in verse 24 is, is that he who seeks to save his life is going to lose it. But if we're willing to give it up and say, Jesus, all of it's yours, that is when we truly find life. 
that is when we truly find purpose. And so I think we get to flip that little saying on its head this morning. This morning you get to go home and say, finders weepers and losers keepers. He who would seek to save his life, to find his life, you're missing out because one day you're going to realize that that life wasn't all about making yourself happy. There is never enough money. There is never uh, enough of whatever it is that you're chasing. There is never enough unless it's Jesus, in which case he has more than enough to satisfy us. Verse 25, Jesus uh, presents a, a rhetorical question to these guys. He, he says that, what does it profit a world if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? You know what? This wasn't just a rhetorical question for Jesus. This was a, a practical temptation that Jesus actually had to face. You guys remember at the beginning of his ministry when he was in the wilderness, this was something that Satan presented to him. Satan tempted Jesus and said, I'll give you the whole world if you'll just bow down and worship me. To gain the whole world at the expense of one's soul is a bad investment. We got investment people in here. Rico, I see you. It's a bad investment, right? <clears throat> to gain the whole world at the expense of one's soul, it's not a deal worth making. We get to the end of all of this, and there's, there's one verse right at the end that I had to read it and reread it and reread it again because it seemed strange to me as I read it. Verse 27, it's, it's interesting. Let me read it for you guys again. It says, But I say to you truthfully, there are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. It's easy for us to read that and go, hmm? Like, what, what in the world is Jesus talking about here? What is it? That doesn't make sense. Right? Because we're sitting here now 2,000 years later and we look at that verse and we read that verse and we go, well, kind of sounds like Jesus is saying that those guys aren't going to die until the second coming of Christ, until he comes back and, and sets the world right, that the, the kingdom of God comes, right? We read that and we go, well, that can't be right. Something's wrong here because I know all those guys are dead and I also know Jesus hasn't come back yet. So that can't be the understanding. Also, just a a little bonus note for us as we read that, if we read that in the chain of everything else that we've read up to this point, what are the last six or seven verses telling us? Jesus is looking at these guys saying, guys, you know what? Life is going to be difficult. Life is going to be hard. Following me, the, the path of being a true disciple of Jesus, it's not always easy. So it doesn't really fit... Guys, you're not going to die. doesn't really fit with, with the idea that Jesus is saying this life's going to be hard. So what in the world is he saying? Well, you know what I think this is? I think this verse is an encouragement. It is a, a hope, a, a, a glimmer of hope that Jesus gives to some of these guys. And he's saying, guys, you're going to get to see some of the glory. You're going to get to see just a, a, a taste of what this is all going to look like because Jesus knows that there's a a, a difficult path that's coming for these guys. But you know what? If we keep reading one verse later, Luke fast forwards eight days and and takes us to what we're going to look at next week, which is this incredible picture of the transfiguration of Jesus, of Jesus taking three guys, three of those 12 disciples up on a mountain and showing them 
how glorious he really was. So when we read this verse 27, I think what we're seeing here is, is Jesus pointing forward to that. He joins the transfiguration of verse 28 and beyond with, with this story of, guys, it's not going to be easy. He's saying it's not going to be easy. The, the path may be difficult. If, if someone from the outside looks in, they're going to look at this and go, man, you guys are crazy for wanting to give up everything that you want and just doing what Jesus says all the time. But what Jesus is saying here and what Jesus is pointing to is, is hey, guys, if, if you notice what's happening in the next few verses, you know what's awesome? Jesus is the most powerful being in the universe. He, he, he peels back a little bit of the disguise, shows these disciples just a little glimmer of who he is as the God of the universe. And you know what? Like their minds are just blown. Transfiguration is a foretaste of the glory that's coming. Jesus is trying to give these guys hope. So let's wrap it all up. Let's, let's spend just a couple of minutes trying to say, all right, so, so what do we do with all this? Anytime we sit down and read the Bible for ourselves or we get together and we share and study on a Sunday morning, there's, there's two things that we always try to do, that we should always try to do and that I always try to do on Sunday mornings. The first thing that we have to look at is what is this Bible passage talking about? What is it saying? What is it trying to communicate? Once we understand that, then we're able to answer the question. It it shouldn't just be an intellectual thing. So so that's what it's saying. Then what do I need to do with it? So, So what does that have to do with me? We have to answer the questions. What does it say and what does it have to do with me? So what this Bible passage showed us. It showed us that there are that there are people who knew Jesus best, that these disciples who knew Jesus the best, that followed him closely, that saw everything that he had been doing for the last year and a half. We have Peter speak up and answer the question, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the promised one from God. You're the one that that the stories have told us about. You're the one that we've been waiting for because you are the one that was sent from heaven to come and to save us. Jesus is God's anointed one. He is the Messiah. And who better to know that and to communicate that to us than the guys that had seen him every moment of every day for a year and a half. So what? So what do we need to do about that? So what do we take away from this this morning? Well, you guys remember I asked you the question, who do you say that he is? Jesus asked the disciples that question, who do you say that I am? And and that question is a, is one that we all have to answer personally. We don't get to, to come to heaven and say, well, the general consensus was that you were God, so no, we have to answer for ourselves. We have to leave here this morning answering for ourselves, who do you say that Jesus is? Who is he to you? And not answering that really isn't an option because not answering it is, in a way, answering it. By not answering that question correctly, you're saying, well, Jesus wasn't important enough to me for me to take the time to consider that question. So, so that's kind of an answer in its, itself. Up to this point in the Gospel of Luke, we've seen the description, the, the call for people to follow Jesus. We see it very, very simply. You guys remember? There's, there's two things that, that people have been called to time and time and time again. People have been called to repent and believe. John the Baptist, repent and believe. 
other places, repent and believe. So this week's passage, it seems to add a little bit more to this idea of what does it look like to follow Jesus? Well, up to this point, repent and believe. And now, deny yourself and take up your cross and, and follow me daily and all these other things that, that are kind of added on to it. It sounds more complex, but, but I'd argue it's not really anything extra. What it is is just a clearer explanation of what it truly means to repent and believe. Repent is defined as having a radical change of mind regarding one's priorities in life. We've talked about this idea of repent, right? If we were moving in one direction, to repent is to stop to realize, I'm not going that direction anymore, to turn around and to walk the other way. So what that looks like practically in our life is, I, I want this, I'm chasing after that, I'm, I'm going to chase success, I'm going to chase money, I'm going to chase comfort, I'm going to chase happiness, I'm going to chase whatever is down that path that you may have set out. Repent and believe that Luke is calling us to is realizing well, that's, that's not the path that I want. That's not the path that's, that's going to bring me joy and happiness that I want to continue to walk down. So we repent, we stop, and we turn, and we walk in the other direction. We say, no, 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 Jesus calls the shots now in my life. What it's saying here is, is Jesus is saying, come after, follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow daily, lose your life, don't be ashamed of me, don't be ashamed of my teaching, all in, all the time. This section makes it just incredibly clear how demanding discipleship is. We use that word discipleship in church, right? That, that idea of being a disciple of Jesus. We could use apprentice there, and it kind of means the same thing in our culture of what disciple was back a couple thousand years ago. Be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus saved us for discipleship. There are some people that would, would come in and would hold up the Bible and would say, God loves you and God wants to save you from hell, and so if you'll just pray this prayer, when you die, you don't have anything to be scared of. And while all of those things are true, it's just like a small portion of the story, right? It's just a little bit of, of what the deal actually is because Jesus didn't just say, I, I want to just make sure you don't go to hell one day. What Jesus said is, I've come that, that I, I wanted to give you abundant life. Some translations will say, I've come that they might have life and that they might have it to the fullest. Life with Jesus, the, 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 the benefits of following Jesus don't start after we die. They start now. They start the moment that we give our life to him and, and we realize that the path that we used to be on is not actually that fulfilling, but, but the life that Jesus calls us to is absolutely worth it. It may cost us a lot. It may, it may look like we're losing our life, but in losing our life, we're the ones that actually find it. Jesus saved us to be fully committed disciples. His goal was to make a people that were eager to be his people, that were excited to do what he said to do. Titus chapter 2 talks about this. I want to read just a couple of verses for you guys. Titus 2, 11 through 14. says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. 
what those verses are saying is, is in that last verse it says that Jesus bought us back, that, that Jesus set us free from, from all of the, the bondage, from being trapped in sin that we used to be trapped in. But instead, we get to now belong to him. And in belonging to him, we get to be excited about that path that Jesus is calling us to here in this passage. There's two questions for us as we wrap all this up. The first one is super clear. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? Is he a fraud? Is he just a good teacher? Is he some uh, godly-ish something that has just kind of carved out a role in popular culture? Or is he what Peter said? Is he truly the Son of God that came to be our Savior and our King? The second one If you confess Jesus as Christ, if, like Peter did, you say, yeah, 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 Jesus is the one. If you cling to his bloody cross for your hope, if you take up your own cross and deny yourself and follow him, are you willing to make that deal? Are you willing to lay everything else aside and say, Jesus, I am all in. Because that's what he wants for us. That is where we find the abundant life, the exciting life, the fulfilling life, the the, the life that he calls us to. It's not in, yeah, I'll go to church every once in a while. Yeah, I I, I bought a Bible. Like, it it rides around in the back of my car with me, so somehow that's going to, I don't know. That's that's a, 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 a partially fulfilled, partially somehow maybe a little bit God related it's not the abundant life that he's calling us to what he said in these verses is if you will lose your life for me you will have far more than you ever imagined you will be more fulfilled you will have more joy you will have more uh, pleasure in life God's the one that made it God's the one that created the world God's the one that he, he wrote the owner's manual you know what's more effective than, than sitting there with something that you're trying to assemble and figure out how to do it for yourself? Reading the owner's manual. They know how it works, and it's going to work better if you, if you read the instructions. If we sit here and we just try to figure it out, well, may, maybe I'll go do that for a little bit. That, that sounds good. Oh, I'll come over here and do this for a little bit. That seems interesting. We, we chase after whatever shiny thing in life that, that may catch our attention briefly. No, 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 no. The way that we will truly find life is by saying, I I don't want all that stuff anymore. Jesus, I want to walk the path that you've laid out for us. I want to be a disciple. I I, I want to give all of that other stuff up so so that in being the person that you invited me to be, man, he is going to give us more true life than we could ever imagine. So do you want that deal? If you do, There may be some growing pains, but I'll tell you, it is absolutely worth it. In just a moment, we're going to finish up. We're going to pray. I'd invite you, if you want to talk with somebody, come find me. I'll be outside under the blue tent. Uh, Our prayer team is also going to be out there if you want to come talk with someone. They would love to pray with you and chat with you. They're going to be to your right as you go out the doors under the white tent. And if you're new with us, thank you so much for being here with us. We would love to to get to know you a little bit better. And so if you stop by our red tent outside, 
uh, they would love to give you a free gift and thank you for being here with us. Would you guys pray with me? God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for this interesting passage that we got to look into a little bit this morning. God, as you called us to, God, to lay everything aside so that we could follow you. God, help us to be people who answer the question the same way that Peter did. Who is Jesus? God, we know that you are the Christ, that you are the one that has power over sickness, over death, over nature, over the the supernatural. God, you are over it all. God, we give ourselves to you, and we pray that God, that as we go out, God, as we have opportunity this afternoon, as we have opportunity tomorrow when we go into work, God, we pray that every moment of it would be, God, that it would be that we are fixed on your path for our lives. God, that we would deny chasing after what we want to chase after what you want for us. God, we pray that we would walk the path of discipleship to truly belong to you. God, do your work in us that only you can do. We pray all this in Jesus' precious, beautiful name. Amen.